Hello and welcome to The World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I speak to Phil Jones, researcher at Autonomy and author of Work Without the Worker, Labour in the Age of Platform Capitalism. We discuss whether how what we refer to as automation actually relies on the proliferation of poorly paid micro work around the world, who does this work under what conditions, and how workers can start to organise to resist their exploitation at the hands of some of the most powerful companies in the world. Thank you so much, as always, to our amazing patrons who make the show possible. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who have let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Phil Jones on whether automation really is automated. Hello, Phil Jones, and thank you for joining me on A World to Win. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Very nice to be here and thanks for having me on. No, thanks. Um, thanks for coming on the show. So we're going to be talking today about your book, Work Without the Worker. The first question I want to ask you is, why is automation not really automation? So part of what I'm trying to do um, in my book is, is intervene in current debates around automation. So sort of much of the recent discussion uh, tends to have a kind of fairly sort of absolutist tenor. Uh, we tend to think about the destruction of kind of whole sectors. Um, one example might be Amazon's automated convenience stores sort of spelling the end of retail jobs. Um, or we talk about the sort of destruction of uh, whole occupations. So an example here might be autonomous vehicles taking the jobs of taxi and truck drivers. Or even on an even grander scale, we kind of talk about a jobs apocalypse where over sort of 40% of jobs disappear in a, in a wave of automation. Uh, as certain predictions about AI a few years back suggested. Most of the promises of of AI so far, sort of creating full automation, whatever that might mean, um, have not yet really come true. So a good example is Amazon's automated stores. Uh, They really didn't take off in the way the company imagined in the the US. Uh, Far fewer stores have kind of opened than they initially planned. And that's in part because consumers haven't taken to it in the way that Amazon imagined they would, which is, you know, is, is a, a, continue, a continuing and serious problem for um, sort of automation technologies. We've also seen um, a number of big tech companies pull investment from uh, technologies from, such as aut- autonomous vehicles recently with the realisation that um, in the near future, this is not really a possibility. Uh, but yet yeah, automation is, is, is happening just in slightly different ways than we imagined. So um, for the most part, Artificial intelligence tends to entail hybrid forms of automation. Uh, That is, um, AI will tend to automate some of the tasks that compose a job uh, while outsourcing other tasks to a crowd of workers. So that will be those tasks that AI is not yet able to do. Um, It's worth emphasizing that automation relies on a lot of work. Um, An autonomous vehicle, for instance, relies on workers feeding it precise data about how to navigate traffic. And this will be done for sort of years and years before the uh, the technology can be released into the wild as such. Uh, so yeah, yeah, th- that's one of the reasons why automation isn't really the kind of automation that we tend to imagine. How does this wave of automation differ from previous waves of mechanization and digitalization? Is it really um, fair to say that we're living through what people have called kind of fourth industrial revolution? 
So it's, again, it's worth emphasizing that it, it, it is different. Artificial intelligence requires a lot of what we might call unskilled labor. It needs a lot of what has, has come to be called actually micro work. So this is kind of the main sort of subject of my book. And um, what micro work basically means is short data tasks. Uh, these tasks are hosted on digital platforms or micro work platforms, uh, which act as intermediaries between contractors and workers. And they take a cut from every transaction between these two parties. Um, so platforms that listeners might be familiar with are Amazon Mechanical Turk, which was the first and is still the most famous of these platforms, um, and another European platform called Clickworker, which is relatively kind of large in terms of how many workers it hosts in Europe and globally. And I think last time I checked, it claimed to have a user base of about 2 million people. In terms of how these sites operate, the contractors who use them to outsource tasks are very often large tech companies such as Google, uh, Facebook, Uber, or Microsoft, um, and they need large numbers of workers to process data, basically to support their machine learning capacities. So they might also be they might also be startups as well, smaller companies, or maybe sort of marketing companies, or even university lecturers who are using uh, these sites to kind of get workers to fill in surveys and so forth. But as the artificial intelligence industry has grown, um, the majority of the work is now geared towards basically exclusively towards sort of machine learning algorithms. Um, and this has kind of changed the, the, the kinds of tasks that are available. So a lot of the tasks now involve annotating images of, of urban areas with labels like uh, car, pedestrian, traffic lights, um, which will show autonomous vehicles how to navigate urban centres. Or it might be recording specific accents to train chatbots or annotating images of faces to train facial recognition technology. A useful example I use in the book is, is Uber. Uh, so the company is, is famous or indeed infamous, actually, for its um, automation of management. So that's its kind of replacement of taxi managers with algorithms, which will organize the workflow, dictate task length, wage prices, etc. But actually, behind the scenes, some of this work is, is not done by algorithms, but is quietly being completed by workers on microwork sites. Um, so I think, I think this has some quite interesting implications. Uh, so the manager of a taxi firm would usually have to supervise a team of drivers, making sure, um, for instance, that they are safe to be on the road um, and that they are who they say they are. Um, this is not something that Uber has dealt with very well. Um, part of the problem is that its identification software is prone to errors and has been bad at kind of judging whether um, a driver is, in fact, who they say they are. So the way the company's dealt with this um, is, is not... It's not through algorithms at all. It's actually by sending a validation task to a microwork platform. So a worker on a platform like Clickworker or Appen uh, will be given, say, 30 seconds to decide whether the face of an Uber driver on shift matches their photograph on record. So if the worker decides yes, then the ride will go ahead. If no, then it's it's cancelled. Um, so you can sort of see here the sort of the way in which work that would have once been done by a manager or supervisor um, it's not actually automated, but simply kind of outsourced as microwork. It's sort of, in effect, the function of the manager is here dispersed amongst algorithms and, and a crowd of precarious workers. Effectively, the worker sort of um, subtends the, the automated process. How new is, is microwork? Because a lot of the kind of split up um, individual tasks that you're describing almost sounds like a throwback to um, the kind of informal piecework that like Marx describes in Capital. Yeah, in some respects, it, it is. Um, it also differs in a number of ways. Um, so one of the things I talk about in the book 
um, is how Microwork represents a kind of uh, digital equivalent to the kinds of jobs done in the informal economy. Um, so the sociologist uh, Jan Bremer has this excellent term, uh, wage hunters and gatherers, um, which he uses to describe workers in cities like Mumbai and Kinshasa um, that exist um, almost entirely outside of the formal labour market, very much on the economic fringe, um, who have been forced by um, the circumstances to continually search for sort of streams of petty income. So they, they kind of move from activity to activity as the market dictates. Uh, Microwork is, is really similar to this in that workers will likely spend more of their day hunting for tasks than actually doing paid work. Um, so the majority of these workers uh, who come from the Indian subcontinent, um, from uh, East Asia um, and Latin America, they'll have few, really very few formal protections, um, kind of similar to those who make clothes in sweatshops for sort of large large companies like, like Walmart or whatever in the global north. Um, some, some critics have actually called microwork sites um, digital sweatshops. But I think this is only really an accurate description of sites that offer repetitive, consistent work. Um, and actually, these sites are kind of few and far between. In, in, in terms of actual conditions for most microworkers, um, uh, a better comparison is the informal worker described by writers such as uh, Jan Bremen, who I just mentioned, and uh, Mike Davies. And this worker continually has to find new exchanges, moves from kind of petty task to petty task, um, um, and will perform multiple services for multiple contractors over the course of a single day. Um, and they remain in this, this, this state of some kind of, kind of continual uncertainty as to whether they'll find enough income to survive. It's sort of like a, kind of like a miserable um, inverse of Marx's idea of communism. Um, the idea that, that, that workers might fish in the morning, uh, whatever it is, rear cattle in the afternoon and then do something cerebral at night. Um, informal workers might sell tissues in the morning, pick rubbish in the afternoon and, and then shine shoes in the evening. Um, and a microwork is kind of like a digital equivalent of this kind of worker, um, though, though arguably working under kind of slightly less dangerous conditions. So, for instance, they might, I don't know, uh, label pictures of cats in the morning for an algorithm, train facial recognition in the afternoon and upload pictures of their feet after dinner, um, all for kind of completely different contractors. What are the advantages to the platforms of structuring work in this way? So microwork platforms are ba basically sort of set up to, to privilege the contractors that use them. Um, so a good example here, something that's worth bearing in mind um, is that wage theft on microwork sites is, is incredibly common. It's sort of, in fact, actually many of the platforms seem to be organised around wage theft as a kind of principle. Um, the platforms are set up in such a way that contractors can sort of all too easily avoid paying workers, basically. Say, for instance, um, a contractor is not satisfied with the quality of a task. Um, they can simply refuse to pay the worker who has no recourse to action on the platform, basically. There's nothing on the platform um, which allows the, the worker to, say, complain or to report a, a requester or contractor that doesn't, doesn't pay them. Um, uh, yeah, and basically the contractor need not offer a reason, basically, for this. They can do it totally without justification, uh, which effectively means that even if the task is done to a decent standard, um, they can just decide not to pay. And this means that a huge percentage of tasks on these platforms go unpaid. Um, one, one study found that on ClickWorker, 
um, one of the most sort of popular microwork sites, um, as much as 15% of all tasks go unpaid. Um, another survey found that 30% of workers say they, they, they lose their pay on a regular basis. Um, that's across, sorry, that's more generally just across sort of microwork platforms as a whole. The sort of the reason platforms offer this or the kind of justification that they give um, is that they're not um, arbiters kind of over fair labour practice. They're just sort of neutral intermediaries. Um, and for this reason, should not enter into disputes between the, the workers and the contractors. Um, so, for instance, if a contractor repeatedly refuses to pay workers with the excuse, say, that the work wasn't completed to a, a sufficiently high standard, uh, workers can't report the contractor. So they can't give them a bad review um, or even within the parameters of the platform, warn other workers about sort of bad contractor behavior. So this means that a bad sort of a, a bad contractor can just, you know, can continue basically without with, with impunity. And what's the psychological impact on the worker of this kind of quite precarious um, ad hoc work and also the massive imbalance of power that clearly exists between them and their employers? Well, there's not really any studies into this, but I guess we can sort of speculate a little bit um, and we can sort of base it on the fact that there have been some studies. So there's a study by UCL a few years back about zero hour contract workers, um, which showed that um, that level of precarity, that level of sort of volatility in terms of hours was highly detrimental on, on the workers' mental health. Um, on microwork sites, there's that, there's the uncertainty, there's the, there's the volatility of both hours and pay. There's also the sheer fact of just the repetitiousness of the work, um, of continually sort of staring at a screen, uh, clicking on images of, of, of cats or cars or whatever it is that you're training the algorithm to recognise, and doing this over maybe sort of 10 to 12-hour days sometimes. In fact, a lot of the workers that are in... Um, countries such as the Philippines um, will have to work nights or will have to work very sort of uh, fragmented days in that they'll have to be available um, when the contractors, when the big tech companies basically need need them available. So this also means that they're, you know, they're working all kinds of bizarre hours um, without, again, with, with sort of um, a very high degree of volatility. And where is most of this micro work taking place in the world and which companies are making the most use of it? So this is, it's largely in the global south. I mean, you know, this work is kind of becoming increasingly popular in the UK and it, it has been relatively popular in the US for, for sort of um, the past 10 years um, on platforms such as Mechanical Turk. But the majority of it is, is happening in the global south. Um, and yeah, it should be emphasised again, um, the conditions are really, you know, pretty terrible. Um, as I was just saying a minute ago, you know, wage theft is rife, um, Workers can kind of have their um, accounts shut down with, you know, absolutely no notice. Um, one of the reasons why um, these platforms tend to um, source workers from the global south is that there's basically no sort of, um, there's no regulation outside of the platforms either. So this means that they get workers that have, you know, got no workers' rights. There's no uh, wage minimums. Um, often there's no restrictions on how many hours a week the workers can work on these platforms. Um, and this basically means that this has become a, a sort of a bit of a, a bit of a wild west, really. It's a kind of a bit of a free for all. Um, and, you know, platforms are basically racing to the bottom um, in terms of how much they sort of they're, they're sort of paying workers. So tasks, for instance, might be paid at sort of um, one cent for kind of 15 minutes work. Um, or they might be, you know, um, paid a bit more than that. So you might, for instance, get something which is um, more like a dollar for an hour. Um, but then 
um, the task itself will end up being much longer than it was advertised for on the site. So the worker might think that they're about to undertake a task which takes um, 15 minutes to 20 minutes for a dollar and and the task actually ends up taking much closer to say an hour, hour and 15 minutes. And on most of these sites, um, the, the worker can't pull out of a task once they've started because then they'll lose the pay for the task. So once you've committed to it, even if it's taking much longer than the than the, the contractor um, advertised the task taking, uh, the worker could, kind of has to continue. And are governments in the global south um, like either trying to do anything to kind of um, regulate these sectors? You've implied there's not much regulation at the moment. Is there a direction towards that? Or actually, is this something that many states are kind of complicit in or actively supporting? It's, it's definitely it's more the case that states are kind of complicit in this. I mean, in a number of countries, um, governments have allowed the World Bank um, and NGOs to set up microwork programs. Um, so this is in part due to sort of some clever marketing on the part of um, of, of the World Bank and a number of NGOs. Um, kind of what's frustrating, but perhaps not particularly surprising, is that many of those who undertake microwork are actually understood by institutions such as the World Bank. Um, and the, the national governments as kind of members of the Global South's middle class, ostensibly sort of one of the, uh, the, the great achievements of globalisation. Um, though we might want to push back somewhat on a definition of the middle class that includes um, anyone who is not in abject poverty. In reality, actually, though, uh, microwork often caters to those who would otherwise be forced into unemployment um, or the informal sector. So an interesting example um, that perhaps kind of troubles this idea of sort of middle class people doing this work, um, which I look at in the book, is Venezuela in 2018, um, which the government was very much complicit in, in the sense that um, workers in that country were encouraged to go onto microwave platforms. Um, and that was the year that um, the country's inflation rate reached nearly a, a million percent. <laughs> Basically, its national currency became utterly worthless. Um, unemployment skyrocketed, um, and most people couldn't basically meet their, their sort of basic needs day to day. Um, so to sort of survive in this brutal environment, and again, encouraged by the government, um, middle class Venezuelans, uh, and I kind of use the term middle class here very loosely, um, were uh, pushed into sort of hunting for dollars on microwork sites. Um, specifically, Venezuelans were using microwork sites uh, such as Mighty AI, um, a company which has uh, recently been bought by Uber uh, to trade autonomous vehicles, often being paid uh, far less than a dollar an hour. And so the, the, the veneer of respectability microwork has managed to retain um, is, is in part due to sort of government efforts and NGO efforts and also institutions like the World Bank, um, which back in the early 2010s, uh, this is the World Bank, um, back in the 2010s pushed microwork as a kind of salvation for sort of labour markets in the global south. Um, so this happens around the same time as a number of, of NGOs started microwork programs in spaces like refugee camps and slums um, with sort of dubious mottos like um, give work, not aid. Um, yeah, it is sort of in a spirit not so different from microloan programs. Only now you kind of have to you have to sort of um, work for, for, for pennies an hour. Um, the, the, the other way these sites have kind of managed to maintain an air of respectability is the image sort of they construct for themselves. Um, so the sites are sort of made to look um, as if they cater to a kind of professional middle class. Again, something which has been um, 
um, useful for these for these platforms sort of gaining um, um, gaining the support of governments in the global south. Um, so sort of on sites like Clickworker, uh, you find this kind of uh, sort of sort of sepia tinged, almost kind of euphoric image of young people. Um, on laptop, um, on laptops, kind of um, laughing, apparently really enjoying doing the tasks that, that are being paid a pittance. Um, so the sites are kind of selling this image of remote work um, to to national governments, and um, it's this sort of this image of the remote work dream, uh, but it's really just sort of a new form of of wage survivalism. So one of the one of the um, uh, the NGOs which has kind of been most famous for this is is SAMA, uh, previously known as SAMASource, which was uh, founded in 2008. Um, and this this um, NGO recruits sort of workers in the global south, so in Haiti, Pakistan and Ghana, um, quite regularly refugees um, in refugee camps or people who are in slums um, to kind of complete data training projects for large tech companies. So it started off as a, a not-for-profit, but is now a for-profit, and this is kind of this is kind of the direction a lot of these um, so-called impact sourcing organisations have taken over the last few years. So, yeah, moving from a, a not-for-profit to then becoming a, a for-profit, which again means then they are sort of um, they're placed in this sort of a race to the bottom on, on on sort of wages and conditions for these workers. You mentioned there that a lot of these platforms try to sell what they're doing as basically kind of employing middle class workers, perhaps young professionals around the world. How do you think that knowing what we know and what you explore in your book um, should really change the way that we understand class? Because there is this idea that if you're doing a kind of professional job, i.e. if you're sitting at a laptop rather than at the literal coalface, then you are in some ways a middle-class worker with a level of autonomy over your job and probably getting getting better paid. So how do you think this should really shift the way that we actually understand class? So, yeah, this is a good question. I mean, I think it, basically we've seen, we've sort of seen over the last 40 years the sort of steady proletarianization of lots of white-collar jobs. Um, this, is, this is kind of a, a sort of a further... A sort of a further shift, I suppose, a further sort of twist of that screw, um, and it, it's sort of one of the things that that, that used to be you used to used to be able to say about um, a white collar job is that it had autonomy, basically a degree of choice, a degree of independence um, that workers in sort of um, manual jobs or in manufacturing would have lacked. But actually, that sort of degree of autonomy you find with micro work, at least, is, is it's basically pretty much entirely gone, really. Um, so the workers, the workers on these platforms, um, a lot of the time don't even really know who they're working for. So they don't even have a choice about who they're working for. Often they don't even know what they're working on. And this is to do with the fact that these sites are set up to kind of create um, um, a degree of opacity that allows the companies in the background who are contracting this labour um, to, yeah, effectively have these sort of projects in sort of in, in complete secret. There, there are both political and economic reasons for this. So a particularly sort of useful example here um, is a project between Google and the US de- uh, sort of Department of Defense. Um, Google wanted to keep the project secret for kind of obvious reasons. Um, They've been contracted by the Department of Defense to develop artificial intelligence software capable of kind of um, sort of ordering um, lots of hours of drone video um, with the end goal of helping the military identify targets on the battlefield. 
it turned out that AI alone wasn't sort of capable of, of sorting the drone footage with sufficient accuracy. Um, so Google used the microwork site figure eight to kind of contract workers to do the bits of AI that, that um, they couldn't complete. Anyway, so it turns out in a, a report in the Intercept, late, a report in the Intercept later that year, kind of detailed how the workers had no idea they were working for Google um, and had no idea of the nature of the project itself. Uh, they didn't know they were helping the Pentagon engage in sort of near real-time analysis of um, specific targets, um, or, or, or for that matter, that Google was facilitating this work. Um, it's partly because the work is highly abstract and fragmented, um, so workers sort of you know, will very often on these sites rely on the goodwill of contractors to tell them what they're working on. Um, needless to say, when you're a, a company as powerful as Google, you probably don't feel like this is something you need to do. Um, so this sort of this this example demonstrates that what we would have once called a white collar work, um, work that involves you know sitting behind a laptop and, and doing bits of sort of um, um, IT work or data work or whatever, um, no longer kind of has um, the sort of degree of autonomy that we would kind of associate with it. And to my mind, at least, this raises not only sort of questions around sort of the nature of class, as you pointed out, Grace, but also sort of serious kind of ethical questions. Um, so particularly when the kinds of places the Defence Department is sending drones to are the very countries where this kind of work is taking place. So it seems entirely feasible, and this is this is a speculation of my own, I don't know this for sure, but it kind of seems entirely feasible uh, that microworkers, when doing tasks like sort of training drones, are directly showing AI how to uh, sort of oppress them better. Um, another example here um, that is useful is sort of... Um, uh, face tagging tasks on microwork sites, um, which are used to train facial recognition technology. Now, we know that the technology contains eugenicist logics and produces highly racist results, often targeting uh, black and brown people as criminal suspects. Um, the technology is sort of increasingly popular as a, as a, as a police strategy. Um, so, for instance, the LAPD has used the software um, thousands and thousands of times um, since 2010. Um, and we sort of know that over the last couple of years, um, um, these technologies have kind of taken off on an even grander scale. So with COVID, for instance. Um, so this means basically that there are a lot more face tagging tasks on microwork sites. Uh, but the tasks aren't labelled with any information about how their products will be used. Um, the worker doesn't know whether they are helping an AI algorithm used by the LAPD uh, or whether there may be... Um, you know, helping some other government agency, um, maybe like ICE or something, um, uh, stop refugees, at a, at, you know, aboard using facial recognition. That's because the tasks are entirely opaque. Um, and the institutions um, uh, and bodies that use the technology um, are often sort of, um, often very well hidden. Companies that use facial recognition technology will secretly contract it from companies like Amazon and Google. Um Again, like the sort of Google and Defence Department example I spoke about a minute, unless a contractor gives a worker the details about the task they're working on, the worker has no way of knowing whether they're helping to produce an oppressive technology. So uh, this, this, this may be something to be said. I mean, you, could, you might say that this has always been the case under capitalism, um, that workers are sort of by you know, the very nature of their roles in the system, unwittingly creating products that subjugate them to sort of the profit motive. Um, but I'd also argue that microwork actually represents a significant shift in the knowledge available to workers, um, a kind of a, a really significant diminishment in the knowledge available. Um, 
so plenty of theorists in the Marxian sort of tradition have shown that uh, to some degree, the worker's exploitation must remain unknown to the worker. It's not something that's visible or that most people are conscious of day to day. And for the capitalist, this is a good thing because, um, you know, otherwise, if workers did have this knowledge, there's much more potential that they would rise up. So with microwork, not, not only is the exploitation hidden, but also the nature of the work. Workers are robbed of the kind of t- the, almost the tiny bit of agency they have to decide whether the work is something they wish to do on a moral level. And this is something, again, um, that you would tend to associate with the middle class and with, and with white collar jobs. Um, I mean, to, to, to be fair, I mean, even those that probably the furthest reaches of, of global supply chains will have some idea of what they are working on, even if they don't know who they are working for. People who use microwave platforms are very often robbed of, of, of basically the capacity to know either of these things. How do the patterns of work we see in these platforms, um, these kind of micro-working patterns, interact with um, mechanisms of value transfer that we're usually associated with, associate with imperialism or kind of, yeah, globalization, whatever you want to call it, basically mechanisms through which... Um, value is, is transferred from the periphery of the world economy to the core? Oh, so, so platform capitalism just represents a, a kind of new stage in imperialism in many respects. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, the, the workers on these sites often exist very much at the sharp end of labour markets in the global south. And they're often from countries like India, Kenya, uh, the Philippines and, and Venezuela. Um, and part of the point of the book is to push back against the idea that the worst of platform capitalism is experienced by people in the global north. So, you know, aside from sort of discussions about Amazon warehouse workers, um, Uber, etc., most literature on the subject tends to worry about issues around surveillance and privacy invasions, issues that reflect the concerns of, of, um, of European sort of um, liberal democracy. Um, but there's this whole other issue of, of the data work necessary to make the platform economy function, um, which has, has pretty much been ignored by critics. So to get a sense of kind of how important this work is again um, and the sort of the value that is extracted from this work, um, there is for that sort of there is no Google search without the workers um, who help um, Google rank their pages. And, you know, these will be workers that are um, often in in, in Kenya or the Philippines. Uh, Similarly, Facebook feeds would be sort of full of highly traumatic and pornographic content uh, without the content moderators in, in places like the Philippines. Most of the value is being created in these countries, right? And, and, and then is being siphoned off to the US and China, um, where, the, you know, the sort of the benefits of this, of this um, kind of technology are being borne out either as profit or as, um, um, at least for some, a kind of rise in living standards. So absolutely, it does. It, it is, this is a, um, a sort of an extension of imperialist processes that have been going on for the last few hundred years. And just one last question, which is that the power of the big tech platforms is growing and, and has grown significantly over the course of the pandemic. You know, it's like five companies now make up over 20% of the value of the whole of the S&P 500. The imbalance of power there is only going to grow. How can workers begin to think about resisting this? Yes, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it, it, there are reasons to be confident. We've seen over the last 10 years, uh, growing worker movements at um, Deliveroo, We've also seen them at Amazon, particularly in the US, and there are sort of signs that that, that in Amazon warehouses in the UK, sort of organise you know um, workers are starting to mobilise in ways that um, you know in this sort of seemed impossible five years ago. Um, in terms of micro work, um, I wanted to be careful in the book at least um, 
um, not to create lots of solutions to these problems or not to sort of develop lots of my own solutions to these problems, uh, in part because it, it feels kind of a bit condescending to those who are struggling to organize on these platforms, you know, and doing the fight day to day. But also simply because there aren't really any easy solutions at the moment. Um, you know, I did try and work for a few general scenarios and strategies, which, if nothing else, can help us think more creatively about the options uh, these workers have available to them. And so one possibility I sort of um, I develop in the book is a kind of data blockade um, whereby workers sort of communicate across a number of platforms and all decide at the same time to sort of sabotage tasks on these sites, kind of like the Luddites who were um, a labor movement in the 19th century that um, smashed the smash machines um, that were being used to undermine their labor. Um, in the context of data, uh, this wouldn't really involve smashing machines or smashing algorithms, um, but simply preventing the flow of data that these companies rely on by, um, you know, just doing the tasks badly. So the algorithms are being, you know, trained on sort of bad data. This strategy, as I, I sort of go through in the book, is quite problematic, though, um, because it could lead to some workers simply being kicked off the platforms or otherwise receiving low ratings, which would effectively marginalise them from sort of completing further tasks. This represents a real disincentive to sort of to collective action. And it sort of it ultimately means, uh, I think it ultimately means that the action would have to be taken by enough workers across a variety of platforms um, so that it would be impossible for all to have their accounts closed <laughs> simultaneously because there simply wouldn't be enough workers left on the platforms to complete the work. The problem, of course, with that, again, is that workers can't sabotage tasks under the, the under the cover of cover of dark like the Luddites did, for instance. So, you know, who went out at night to destroy the machines that that threatened to, re to replace them, and they did this at night because it meant that you know they wouldn't be um, caught by um, sort of officials and police. This is more difficult in the context of, of of the digital economy, whether it be for sort of micro workers or, or Uber or sort of delivery drivers or whatever, because the workers are continually being watched. Um, surveillance, particularly on micro work sites, is 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 fairly you know it's pretty much ubiquitous so yeah it's difficult that's a, that's 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 one of the, the the routes that i see potentially being taken in the future but it you know it will rely on some very sort of clever strategizing one thing that i think is is going to be really important in in the coming years um, um are facilities for the for micro workers and indeed for uh, people who do their sort of work remotely daily uh, facilities that allow these workers to uh, meet up in physical space. So one of the reasons why it's hard to organize sort of or, or even imagine forms of organization um, is that these workers, you know, uh, and, and lots of us in the sort of economy now are entirely isolated from each other. Um, so one of the sort of solutions I mention in the book is the, the worker center model, um, which exists mainly in the U.S., um, as a way of bringing together kind of migrant workers um, who would otherwise kind of be fragmented and isolated. You know, they'd be doing their bits of day labor um, and then, um, you know, would be on a different job the next day. So they wouldn't see the same workers potentially from one day to the next or even one week to the next. And um, so that, you know, that, that kind of work also makes um, organizing very difficult. And that's quite similar in a way to, to micro work, but micro work is a, a, an even more intense version of that in that, um, you know, the workers don't ever see each other they're moving from task to task for lots of different companies. So what these centers would do effectively is just create some sort of um, sort of centralization, basically. Um, they could be set up in urban centers where um, there are great numbers of active micro workers 
um, and would provide a sort of space for them to meet and organize um, and would hopefully allow for the kinds of um, the kinds of action that need to be taken um, to sort of um, uh, to bring down these companies or to at least bring them to heel somewhat. Right, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Phil, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. It was great to have you. Thank you very much, Grace.